0: Jade Wu, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me back. We had so much fun talking last time. We had to do it again, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of it. And we just, there was a whole swath of questions I had about <laughs> sleep and new moms in particular that I like. I, we just didn't even get to get to at all. And, and we were chatting afterwards and we we're like, yeah, let's just do another episode on it. So yeah, here we are. hmm So let's start off with, what do we know about how sleep changes during pregnancy and postpartum?
1: Sure. So there are lots of changes, some of them well-known, and some of them might be surprising to people. And so first of all, before we we dive in, I just want to say that I'm going to use a shorthand of the term mom to refer to everybody who identifies as a mother, um, plus people who go through the same types of biological and psychological changes that come along with carrying a pregnancy that may not identify as a mom. So, you know, this is a very inclusive term that I mean, when I say mom. So, all right, so here we go. Uh, Lots of sleep changes during pregnancy to start with. So first trimester, uh, Longer sleep in total, like I'll share my personal experience. I'm currently in my second trimester. So a couple of months ago, I was sleeping like 11 hours a day. So so longer sleep duration, but more nighttime awakenings, lower sleep efficiency at night. um, And, you know, more uh, disruptive sleep at night as well. Um, And more fatigue during the day. So more sleepiness and more fatigue. Second trimester is much better. But then by the time we get into third trimester, especially the last eight weeks or so, that's when people have the most, um, you know, highest frequency of sleep complaints. And that's where, you know, like the belly is really big. Um, There's the lungs are kind of squeezed up into the chest cavity, like not much room to breathe, and there's a lot of physical discomfort and heat, and you know, and and lots you're of peeing every
0: twenty minutes. <laughs>
1: peeing every twenty minutes, <laughs> yeah. Just uh, you know, and psychological changes too of the yeah. excitement and anxiety of the upcoming birth, and you know, uh, all of that, and and whether or not you're actually carrying the pregnancy yourself, I can imagine the third trimester being, uh, you know, leading up to the baby arriving can be a, a very anxious time.
0: So, so it Lauren... sounds like, just to clarify there, it, sound, it sounds like there's both sort of um, like an endogenous, like your body's just doing more work and therefore needs more sleep. Um, but then also there's sort of exogenous factors, like, you know, relatively speaking, like you got this giant belly now and it's just way harder to get comfortable at night. Yeah. So your sleep quality is going to be a little bit disrupted there. Is that is that sort of a fair way to... yeah.
1: I, I would say so. And I would say it, it maybe gets even more n- nuanced than that. Like there are specific hormonal changes, for example, um, when your estrogen levels go up, your um, upper airway gets more constricted. This is something most people don't know. Oh, like Your nasal passage actually gets narrower uh, when you have more estrogen. So for someone like me, I already have kind of a narrow Um, You know, nasal passage, so during my first trimester, like, I I just started having to mouth breathe during sleep and wake up with a super dry mouth and just feel kind of short of breath all the time. So that, you know, something like that um, can be such a random little hormonal change that can really profoundly affect sleep.
0: Yeah. But all that stuff, it sounds like it is fairly typical. Like, it's not surprising for people to have experiences like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And then what 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 about postpartum like um sort of after um once you, after giving birth and or once you have kind of a new baby with you like what do we know about sort of yeah what's what what to be expected um in terms of sleep specifically.
1: Right. Yes. So so I think probably what everybody hears from family and friends and even the healthcare providers is
0: you're never going to
1: sleep again, or you're going to be so sleep deprived. Uh, And I think that's the expectation we all have. But I think I want to bust that myth a little bit, or at least make it a little more nuanced. So it's not so much sleep deprivation that's happening. And even if it is mild sleep deprivation, that's not the thing that's making people have postpartum depression and, and you know poor outcomes. It's actually a a much bigger circadian disruption issue. So circadian refers to your biological rhythms. Um, you know, every, anything from your metabolisms to body temperature to sleep wake cycle. You know, all of us have billions of rhythms in our bodies um, that are hopefully working in sync and hopefully consistent from day to day, going about every twenty four hours, and. There's a huge whopping disruption to our circadian rhythms in the first month or three months um, postpartum that whether or not you carried your baby or someone else carried your baby or whatever, new parents are going to have this huge circadian disruption. And that's actually the issue that is not talked about very much and much more detrimental to mental health, physical health.
0: So how does it, when you say circadian disruption, um, meaning kind of like your internal clock sort of gets, uh, confused, disrupted, like what's going on there exactly?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So two main ways that's happening. One is that we just have less, uh, less consistent days versus nights. Like if you think about a non-pregnant, non-postpartum, just, you know, someone without kids, um, they pretty much sleep during the night and are awake during the day. And maybe if they live in a society of like uh, a siesta culture, they might take a nap in the afternoon. But it's pretty consistent, pretty clear differences between day and night. And they probably also, well, I'll get to the light exposure later. Um, But what happens when you have a baby is that the baby is born without its own internal sleep-wake circadian rhythm. Uh, the, the baby develops that rhythm somewhere, yeah, somewhere between month one and month three. And thankfully, by month three, they pretty much have their own circadian rhythm. It's still not um this, like an adult's circadian rhythm, but they do have pretty clear sense of day versus night. So while you're caregiving for a newborn within those first three or so months, you have to follow their lack of rhythm. So especially in the first four weeks when they have zero rhythm whatsoever, then you are uh, awake a lot during the night because they are awake a lot during the night. And you may very well be sleeping a lot during the day, you know, like the the old adage, like, you know, nap when the baby naps. So you may be seeing... Your sleep becoming like a newborn's, where you sleep in like little chunks all spread throughout the 24 hours, rather than having your sleep consolidated during the night and then your wake consolidated during the day. So that's one major way that your circadian rhythm is messed up. Um, Another huge way is that your amount of light exposure during the day uh, versus night is also really messed up. Um, So if you think about a someone without kids, they are probably getting a pretty decent amount of light exposure. Like you and me right now both have bright lights in our eyes when we're in our office. When we go outside, we have sunlight, you know, and at night, since we're sleeping, we're not hopefully getting too much bright light. Um, So that day-night contrast and light exposure is really, really, really important for um consolidating our circadian rhythms and for keeping our master clock in our brain uh, happy and on track. And if that master clock is happy and on track, everything else falls into place nicely. But here's, uh, and I want to share some specific numbers because this is really astounding to me. Um, in the first few weeks postpartum, in the first couple months even, um, new parents are just completely turned upside down with their light exposure. So, so here are some figures, um, about 71 to 80% of the day, uh, new moms are spending, uh, their time in less than 50 lux. So for reference, that's a dimly lit room, like, like barely more than a few candles, um, and they're spending only two to five percent of the day in environments over a thousand lux, and a thousand lux is not even that bright. It's an overcast day, so th- basically, uh, new moms are cave dwellers. They are not <laughs> getting a lot of bright light during the day at all, um, and at night they're turning on the light to you know feed the baby, to soothe the baby, to you know change diapers. So, um, so you know, new new moms and you know new parents. Are spending their days like it. I at least personally felt like I was just a zombie. Like there was just nev- an never ending forever day that never ended because of this lack of light exposure. So, those are the two main ways that your circadian rhythm is totally messed up postpartum.
0: Gotcha. So, it's it, in some ways, it's, it's not the, the bigger problem, isn't so much that you're going from, you know, eight hours of sleep down to five or six hours of sleep per night. It's that your circadian rhythms are getting all messed up, and that master clock is getting kind of confused and wonky, and that that's what leads to a lot of the, the symptoms or the 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 difficulty that we experience when it comes to sleep issues, um, postpartum. Well,
1: yes, that's exactly right. And you know the the good news is that in terms of sleep deprivation, excuse me, um, a lot of research is showing that at least amongst um, uh, new parents in pretty well-off industrialized nations who, and those of us who are lucky enough to get some parental leave, um, are actually seeing our total sleep time get back to normal in about a couple of weeks Um, and certainly within the first month most of us anyway so it's not so much the total amount of sleep it's not really sleep deprivation um it's really the circadian disruption and not having consolidated sleep and not having enough bright light during the day um and you know your your body also does make hormonal changes, especially if someone is breastfeeding, Um, the prolactin that is released actually increases the percentage of deep sleep. So, you know, your body is trying to help you out and trying to make up for the, the disruption to sleep by giving you more deep sleep. So it's not so much the sleep deprivation. And we also have research showing that it's not so much the sleep duration that's associated with um, postpartum depression, it's the amount of night awakenings, it's the low sleep efficiency, and it's a low Mm. subjective sleep quality that leads to postpartum depression. So I I wouldn't worry so much about how much total sleep one is getting. I mean, you should still try to get enough. uh, But it's the other things that we need to pay more attention to.
0: Yeah, so what are the what are the implications then if that's the case, if, if circadian disruptions are, are the bigger deal here um, and, and you want to sort of optimize or make sure you're, you're doing your best to, to get back to good sleep? What, what does that imply if it's not so much about the overall amount of sleep you're getting and more about getting your kind of sleep clock back on track? Practically speaking, like w- what, what are some suggestions that come from that?
1: Yeah, so I would say even starting in pregnancy, uh you can help your baby and help yourself get back on track later on if someone is carrying their own pregnancy um having a more consistent circadian rhythm and more robust circadian system during pregnancy actually helps the baby to learn to have a circadian rhythm once they're born so for example if i'm pregnant now if I get lots of light during the day and I keep a pretty consistent sleep-wake schedule, then my baby, once she's born, is more likely to develop her own circadian rhythm more easily and more quickly. Uh, and so, Yeah, and the quicker she develops her circadian rhythm, the quicker I can get back to mine too. So yeah, yeah, that helps everybody. So, so people who are carrying pregnancies by all means, you know, try to keep a pretty steady schedule, get lots of bright light during the day. Um, so that's tip number one, um, tip number two is if you have a partner, you know, if if like there's, there's often a a more primary caregiver is somebody who's doing more of the work and, or the person who carried the pregnancy or gave birth, if that if that person also has a support network that can help a lot too so what what the village and the partnership can can aim towards is that the partner um serves as a support system in such a way logistically that the primary caregiver the birth giver can protect their circadian um Robustness, I guess. Like, so for example, once this baby was is born, uh, I want to have pretty clear days versus nights. So that means I'm gonna try to keep a um, steady bedtime and a steady wake time for myself. So that means if my toddler needs care earlier, you know, than my wake time or later than my bedtime, my partner is gonna have to step up and do that. Gotcha. Um So I don't know if that makes sense the way I said it. Like like the prior everybody's priority if it's logistically possible is for the primary caregiver and or birth givers uh circadian rhythm to be steady. So that that can help a lot too. Um and on a on a practical level, um new parents get yourself a light box, install some broad spectrum light bulbs in your house, uh open up your blinds, you know, spend put your comfy chair Uh, right by the bright window, put your breastfeeding chair right by the window, um, schedule some very low-key leisurely walks around around the block with your baby. Your baby getting that daylight exposure helps her to also develop her circadian rhythm. And you getting that bright light exposure is good for your mood, good for your circadian rhythm, good for your metabolism, everything. So sunlight is going to be, and if not sunlight, Artificial bright lights, that's going to be one of your best, best um, cures.
0: Gotcha. Now, what about? So, a, a question I would have in here is naps, like the issue of naps, right? Yeah. Like, so on the one hand, you're, you're a brand new mom, you, you are at least somewhat sleep deprived, like you're just trying to make yeah. it the day. So, you get <laughs> naps when you can, right? And I think that that's, that's I think we would all agree that's fine. Yeah. But at some point, does it make sense to start um, kind of not napping as much in order to get yourself back on a more normal sort of circadian cycle Mm -hmm. and and if so how do you know when to start doing that like at at the beginning you're just trying to like hang on and survive so you're like i'll nap whenever i can right (laughs) but at some point after a month two months three months whatever you're the the priority is getting that circadian system back into normal functioning so Mm -hmm. how do you know when when it's right to say you know what i probably could nap but i'm gonna I'm going to push through so that I am sleepy at my normal sleep time and get a a better night's sleep. And yeah, yeah, how do you think through that dilemma?
1: That's a fantastic question. I would say, uh, and this is based on anecdotal, clinical, personal uh, experience, and the best of our knowledge from research. So the whole theme here is that there's not enough research on any of this. But based on what we know, first two to four weeks, all bets are off just nap whenever, sleep whenever you're sleepy and you're able to sleep. Uh, whenever the baby lets you and you feel sleepy, go for it. Um, and then starting at about a month when your baby is starting to also get her own circadian rhythm up and running, uh, it it could help to start moving in that direction. So for example, um, maybe get down to two naps a day instead of you know, four, Uh, maybe cap your naps at like an hour instead of letting it go whenever. Maybe if your baby is starting to have one or two predictable naps, like usually for newborns, the first nap that settles in is that first nap in the morning, like like an hour, hour and a half after they wake up for the day. Um, that first nap is like the most solid, most predictable. So if that's a good time for you to go back to sleep for a little bit, for like an hour, half an hour, maybe that's your nap, and then and then maybe like a early afternoon top off, um, so that you know this way by the time it's your bedtime, you've had enough time to build up sleep drive. So yeah, I would say at about a month you should probably be starting to move towards more circadian regularity and if by 3 months you're not back to pretty solid like days versus nights for yourself, uh that's a priority at that point.
0: Okay. Okay, this is a little bit of a sidebar but I've always wondered about this and never um had a found a good answer to but in uh-huh. for adults when you're working on improving your sleep and working through insomnia the obvious, a, a big principle is if you nap a lot during the day, especially uh-huh. late in the day, it lowers your sleep drive. And then so right. it's it's harder to fall asleep at night, right? And, yeah. and one of the principles of getting through insomnia is you want to stay up as long as possible so that your sleep drive is nice and high when the normal kind of bedtime comes along. Mm-hmm. But you also hear this when it comes to sleep and new babies. You hear this idea that the more they sleep, the more they sleep. Yes. Right? You, like you want your sleep to your kid to sleep during the day yep. because they'll sleep more. And so what's, go, what's going on with that? Like, is a, is that, is that true? And like, what's, and then when does that actually, when does that change? And what, like, what's the mechanism there? Like, what's going on? Do you, yeah. do you have any idea? this is always like confuse me.
1: So it is totally true. Uh, and we know that from science and from very strong personal experience over here totally. <laughs> it like yep. completely threw me off uh, so i don't mind sharing that um going into my first baby experience i was like oh i'm a sleep expert i got this <laughs> And then i did not I did not got this <laughs> like it was terrible, um, and I learned the hard way that, yes, sleep begets sleep for for babies, especially very young babies um but you know the principle is actually not opposite from adults. Here's what's going on, so we know in adults we have sleep drive versus arousal, right, so if we have more sleep drive than arousal, we'll fall asleep soon, if we have more arousal than sleep drive, we won't. It's actually the same thing in babies. Except that they need so much sleep that not getting enough sleep raises their arousal. So if they're overtired, Ooh. if they're sleep deprived, if they are not getting sleep at the intervals that they need, they, then it's like their body goes into fight or flight mode and they go into over arousal mode. And so you may think that you're building up sleep drive for your baby by keeping him awake in the evening hours. But really what you're doing is jacking up his arousal so that he can't fall asleep at bedtime.
0: Um, yeah. Jade, I've wondered about this for like six years <laughs> since my first daughter was born. That makes, that makes total sense though, right? You combine right. what you said, a higher yeah. need for sleep. But then crucially, that's really interesting. The idea that not letting, not, or the baby not sleeping enough during the day increases arousal so that when they get to that nighttime phase where you you want them to start getting on a more normal circadian schedule they can't because their arousal is so high because exactly. they didn't get enough sleep during the day.
1: Exactly. And that's how you get into a vicious cycle. So right. absolutely let your baby sleep, you know. So I I I love pediatricians. I think they're the best people in the world and I absolutely love all of the ones that I've interacted with. But I think one tiny thing, which turns out to be a big thing that often the more like old school trained ones tend to get wrong is that I've heard multiple like older generation pediatricians tell me, uh, you know, keep your baby up in the evening so that they're Mm. really sleepy by bedtime. And I'm like, I don't think so. That really backfires for us. And I know that backfires for a lot of other people. Um, So, you know. But I mean, at some point, once they're a toddler, you probably don't want them napping at like five PM. Sure. Um, but you will sort of learn your own baby's quirks and rhythms and and chronotype and everything as time goes on. Right. So, so I but would certainly. Say...
0: It sounds like within that for those first few months, six months, definitely. Oh, just sure. Even more, I would say weeks. the
1: first year uh, easily. Uh-huh. Um, for for young for infants, absolutely. You know, sleep begets sleep.
0: Gotcha. That's great. Thank you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. So another another question I had was I, I remember working with a, a a client of mine in in therapy who had just had a baby, um, and she was telling me how for the first time in her life she was having like pretty intense and frequent nightmares, and yeah. she had never been the kind of person that ever had had nightmares that often. Yeah. Um, and I didn't. Um, I sort of thought, well, okay, that's. It wasn't like bothering her too much. It was more just like, oh, this is like kind of intense. Um, and it wasn't like she had a particularly traumatic birth or, or anything like that. So I didn't really think it was um, you know, any kind of PTSD or anything like that. So I said, mm-hmm. okay, well, let's just keep an eye on it um, yeah. and we'll see how it goes. And we didn't talk too much about it. And after a, a couple months, I checked in with her and she said, oh yeah, you know, like a couple weeks ago, that just it sort of stopped. Like it's not a thing yeah. anymore. Um, yeah. so, but, and this is something I've heard from a, lo- a lot of new moms, both during pregnancy and postpartum is yeah. um, sort of like weird uh sleep symptoms or issues coming up like that? Like what what's going on with that? Like what do we know about um sort of oh, unusual yeah. sleep phenomena during <laughs> pregnancy and post-mortem? I
1: love I love this question because I personally have taken a tour of all of the parasomnias uh, parasomia (laughs) is basically the, the umbrella term for, for all the bizarre kind of sleep symptoms, um, during my own pregnancy and postpartum experience. So very briefly, I'll just share that starting in first trimester pregnancy with my first baby, I started having like almost nightly vivid, intense nightmares, just like awful Mm. stuff. Um, and then, Postpartum, I started having sleep hallucinations. Um, I did a little bit of sleepwalking. Um, I, you know, had all sorts of bizarre. Um, have you heard of um, exploding head syndrome? Which is a beautiful name for. A
0: <laughs> okay, wait. I have. You have to explain it though, because I think a lot of people have not, and they're like, "What? Yeah, <laughs> exploding it's not- head syndrome."
1: It's not nearly as bad as what the name sounds like. Yeah. Um, exploding head syndrome is just where you think you hear a really loud bang or explosion, um, or you know sometimes people hear a scrape or a scream, but there's nothing that actually happened in the environment. It's just it, your brain just made it up. Um, uh, sleep paralysis. I had you know all of all of the
0: stuff. Okay, wait, hold on. I want to I want to go back to so. You you mentioned sleep hallucinations. Um, uh-huh. Is that, is exploding head syndrome, like, is the way you think about it, is it an auditory hallucination, basically? Maybe.
1: You know, I'm not sure, but like, it's, it's technically categorized as a separate parasomnia. It's own, but, it's, right? its own thing. Yeah. yeah. My thinking but is like, why is so it not just an auditory hallucination?
0: So, talk about sleep hallucination real quick. Like, what does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah. So usually this happens sort of in that twilight zone right before falling asleep or right as someone is waking up and is seeing things or hearing things that aren't there. So, for example, I I had horrible hallucinations that I had fallen asleep while breastfeeding and that I had smothered my baby underneath myself. And that was literally not even possible because I never breastfed in bed and I like I specifically made sure that I would not be so sleep deprived that I would like roll over onto my baby. Like I I was very paranoid about that. Uh, So this was not even possible, but my mind still made me hallucinate it like all the time for just the first, you know, like four weeks or so. Um, And you know, you might hallucinate shadowy figures in the room or like I've heard people like see bugs and snakes in their bed and things like that. Uh, so usually they're they're a little bit scary um, and, and they can happen during sleep paralysis, too, which is where you wake up you're conscious, but you can't move. Um, so, yeah, fun stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the other one I throw in there is um, myoclonic jerks. I- I've seen like an you know where you you sort of have that jerk where you like you're fall- you're starting to fall asleep and then you jerk awake and then yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That everything. I think that's actually pretty normal um, unless they happen like a lot or super intensely. Um, but oh but, right, yeah. so yeah,
0: I meant like a like an increase in frequency in those. Sure, would, yeah. I've heard people talk about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm, now, so what I mean. First of all, I think this is important to get out there. And I I'm I appreciate you being willing to talk about your own experiences because I think it's very validating. I think it's very normalizing um, to let people know that because this stuff, if you didn't know, you think like, yeah, oh, shit, like I'm, I'm just like seeing things and like hearing things that aren't there. Like, am I going crazy? Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, so to know that's relatively normal. Um, but I, I also think this is really important as, as an anxiety therapist, particularly. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many cases of New moms who are, you know, six months, a year out, whatever, who have developed a lot of anxiety that started at and around um, pregnancy and birth. And so much of it, I can trace back to, they had experiences during pregnancy or postpartum that were very unusual and scary for them. Um, they started, they sort of developed these beliefs about, that, like, there is something really wrong with me that mm-hmm. I had, mm-hmm. you know, I had this um, hallucination about, you know, falling on top of my kid when I was like, does that mean like, I'm not like cut out to be a good mom. Something must be wrong with me. And that just like spins into like, can spin into really bad cases of anxiety. So I think this is so Mm -hmm. important for people Mm -hmm. to hear that. So um, much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So I I just really appreciate you being willing to to talk. Yeah. And
1: I think that's a really good point because we do hear these horror stories of uh, postpartum psychosis, which is extremely rare, um, where someone might have delusions or hallucinations, uh, regarding the baby where they end up accidentally or sort of delusionally harming the baby. Um, and that I think really freaks people out rightfully so. Um, and, and somewhat more commonly, uh, postpartum OCD is actually, you know, not yes. super rare. Um, and so when we have experiences like hallucinating, having smothered a baby, we get very anxious about you know, doing things exactly the the same way or like not letting ourselves hold the baby or not letting ourselves, you know, sleep just in case we fall asleep and something goes wrong. Um, That can be very, very anxiety provoking, very scary. So so just to shed a light on these bizarre sleep-related experiences. So what's going on is, in part, Uh, your circadian disruption and the sleep deprivation that you're going through during, especially during those first few weeks, that's probably the main culprit for why these bizarre sleep things are happening. Just like if a college student pulled enough all-nighters in a row, they would also start having sleep paralysis and, you know, um, sleep hallucinations and all that. Uh, But this is temporary. It's not that once you start having these, you're going to go down a path of psychosis. That's not how that works. Um, especially if you, um, get yourself back on track with the circadian, you know, rhythms and get back on track with getting enough sleep. And really, really, I highly, highly encourage, you know, getting as much social support as, as you can to help you get back on track. You know, it's, you don't need to be super scared about it or worried about it. Um, Another thing is hormonal changes. So, so this, th- these kinds of uh, symptoms can actually start happening during pregnancy, like they did for me with um, night, uh, nightmares um, and night terrors. Well, not, not so much night, night terrors, just nightmares. Um, because when your progesterone g- uh, levels go up, and especially when they shoot up as quickly as they do during pregnancy, um, your, you have decreased REM sleep. So REM sleep is where most dreaming happens. And what tends to happen is when you suddenly don't have enough REM sleep, when you're REM deprived, something happens called the REM rebound, where your brain is like, oh shoot, suddenly we don't have enough REM. Let's get into REM quicker, and earlier in the night, more intense bouts of REM. Um, and that can really throw off your brain and sort of give you more intense, more vivid dreams that you're more likely to remember. And that coupled with higher anxiety, coupled with harder times um, breathing, because of anatomical changes and hormonal changes, all of that coupled together can sort of set off a bout of nightmares. And the more you worry about nightmares and rehearse those nightmares and get into those nightmares, the more you then perpetuate those nightmares. So sometimes people get into the cycle of nightmares during pregnancy, like I did, um, that they can sort of try to get out of by making sure they get enough sleep, making sure they do lots of rest and relaxation during the day, um, and also just not spending too much time dwelling on the nightmares themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And kind of normalizing it for yourself. Mm-hmm. that This is like a lot of weird shit happens when you get pregnant. <laughs> yes, <from> exactly. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. A lot um, of weird
1: shit happens is like yeah. the motto for pregnancy.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think too, another thing I, I've seen a lot in my work is Um, struggles with intrusive thoughts, which often start as a nightmare or one of these kind of Mm -hmm. sleep hallucinations. And you mentioned the one about accidentally smothering your baby. Mm -hmm. And when you, if you don't normalize them for yourself and instead Mm -hmm. kind of catastrophize them and think like, oh, there must be something really wrong with me. Mm -hmm. What that teaches your brain, right? Is that, ooh, there's this bad thing. We better watch out for it even more. And so you're Mm -hmm. more likely to start having these intrusive thoughts even even during the day, right? And then all the kind of, anxiety and, and, and yeah, distress that goes along with that can be really tough. So it's important early on to be really normalizing and validating with yourself for these experiences. So, Um,
1: so true. Honestly, if I, if I weren't a sleep expert and I didn't know what was going on, I think I may very well have gone down that path of thinking of really taking that baby smothering image, and really running with it 24 yeah. seven, because it's so scary. And it, you know, the thought even occurred to me, even though I knew what was going on, of like, am I going to do this? And am I not paying enough attention? You know, do I not know what I'm doing? You know, these things, th- these thoughts are so easy to come up, because, you know, your brain is designed to be hypervigilant postpartum. That's just that's designed so that you, we, you know, err on the side of being too careful. But then when we swing too far in that direction, it's, it's really, it's really sad and tragic when, when we, you know, spin, spin further into that anxiety and
0: intrusive thought. Yeah. And like you said, I think it's important to, to mention that that kind of true, Psychosis um, mm-hmm. is extremely uncommon with this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and there, there's actually research that shows that the the presence of intrusive thoughts around harming other people or your baby or something like that are not at all correlated with a likelihood of actually doing it. Exactly, I think that's yes. really important to know. It has no predictive validity whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It doesn't mean right. you're more likely or you're at risk to hurt your baby more or something like that.
1: Exactly. Uh, Exactly. In fact, it's way more
0: common than you would think.
1: Yeah. Like you, if you're aware that you don't want to hurt your baby and you're worried about doing it, that means you're not going to do it. Less likely. Yes. Like the, the very extremely rare cases where someone does hurt their baby. That's a, like that's when someone is, is like highly delusional and not tethered to reality at all. Um, And that's, those are, those cases are extremely tragic as well. And, and, you know, those, um, it is very important for people to catch the early signs of, of that happening, but intrusive thoughts and, and psychosis are not the same thing at all, like you said.
0: Yeah. So, how, how do you? So, I know this isn't necessarily your specialty exactly, but just real quickly, how do you delineate those two? Like, how would you know if something, how do you tell the difference between just sort of a, a normal one off like sleep hallucination versus, oh, this is a sign of or the beginnings of like a psychotic episode or, you know, something like that? Oof,
1: That is actually a really tough question. And hmm, I don't know that there's any really easy way to tell other than to say that sleep hallucinations are really, I mean, as per the name, you know, they happen around sleep
0: during sleep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like as you're falling asleep, as you're waking up, you know, but if you are, like wide awake, you know, having a conversation with someone and and that person is getting concerned about what you're saying because it's not tethered to reality. That's very different from, you know, you're like so sleep deprived, you're you're like nodding off and you hallucinate that there's a shadow, a shadow figure in front of you. That's a different thing. Yeah.
0: I think that's right. I mean I, I think in my experience that's the the key differentiator is is this happening outside of sleep related times, or is it Mm -hmm. in those, in those like twilight moments in between, like when you're going into or coming out of sleep? Um, because again, I think another thing people don't realize is that, um, REM sleep, that when you, when you dream the most, it's, it's only one step removed from being awake. Like it's the lightest form of sleep. Right. And so you're that close. You're just like right on the edge of being awake. And it, like you said, if your circadian rhythms are kind of disrupted, it's very easy for that border to get kind of blurred, right? And for dreams to kind of pop into reality. So that's another way of thinking about it is that Mm -hmm. you can call it, you know, sleep hallucination, but it's like a, it's like a dream kind of popping into reality temporarily. That's
1: exactly what it is. Yeah. The veil between REM and wake is very thin anyway. And if your sleep isn't consolidated, like it usually is at night time, you might be just having little pops of dreams, you know, while you're awake. And that's what sleep paralysis is too, by the way, because during REM sleep, your body is you know we can with shorthand just say your body is paralyzed, like your major muscles are kind of turned off right. to prevent you from acting out your dreams and right. you know right. for, good reason. <laughs> for good reason um, so if you are like halfway out of REM and you're consciously aware of being awake, but your body's still doing REM, then that's why you are paralyzed, so you know what I think when people know that, it's less scary uh because otherwise it feels like. You know, like alien abduction experiences have come out of sleep paralysis experiences. It feels very terrifying and very real in the moment.
0: So another potentially kind of odd symptom or experience that can develop during pregnancy and and even postpartum that I think is more serious that maybe people don't take seriously enough are snoring and breathing issues that could be um, indicative of sleep apnea. So can you talk a little bit about sleep apnea and what that can look like and just kind of breathing issues generally with sleep in in pregnancy and postpartum?
1: Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is very serious. So sleep disordered breathing is kind of the umbrella term for the whole spectrum. On the more severe end of the spectrum, we have obstructive sleep apnea, which is where uh some anatomical part of the, uh, of the airway closes during sleep. And while it closes, you're not breathing, you're not getting new oxygen and your CO2 levels, um, climb, climb, climb to the point where your brain is realizing, Oh, you're suffocating. You have to wake up to breathe. Um, and so, so that is called an apnea where at least for 10 seconds, you're not breathing and your CO2 levels get so high that your, your brain forces you awake to breathe. Um, just for context for someone with a moderate level of sleep apnea, which is like between 15 and 30 apneas per hour, that's every two to four minutes someone is waking up to breathe because they hadn't been breathing for, for 10 seconds, you know? So that's actually quite scary. Um, So this can happen to people of any age, not necessarily just during pregnancy, uh, but it is a lot more common during pregnancy. Um, In fact, So, so, so backing up a little bit on the more mild end of the spectrum is uh, snoring Um, and snoring uh, becomes, usually it's about two to 5% of um, like childbearing age women have snoring habitually, uh, but that goes up to something like 25% during pregnancy. So it becomes a lot more common and it's actually associated, even if you're not all the way up at the um, obstructive sleep apnea end of the spectrum, even snoring itself is associated with more perinatal depression, more hypertension and other sort of birth complications. And if we're getting all the way up to sleep apnea, then we're talking about like a five, like a two to 10 fold risk for gestational diabetes, um, threefold risk for gestational hypertension, higher risk for preterm birth, low birth rates, all sorts of um, scary complications. So so it is really important to take sleep disorder breathing seriously. And and, and I just want to say that for snoring, it's especially it's especially problematic if you never snored before and then you started snoring during pregnancy. So that should really be at least an orange flag. Um, now, the, the challenge is that to get a sleep study to assess for mm. sleep apnea, it takes usually a few weeks to get an yeah. appointment. If you are lucky enough to, yeah, if you're lucky and it's really expensive and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, because pregnancy is a dynamic process, by the time you actually get in to to do the appointment, you're like in your third trimester already and you're about to give birth, So that's a big challenge for public health to figure out. Um, But for individuals, I would just say, do take it seriously. It's not just a cute, funny thing that you started snoring when you got pregnant. Um, You know, sleep on your side. Uh, you know, if your bed partner tells you that you're snoring, like go talk to your doctor about it. Um, there are, there are mandibular adjustment devices. So like basically mouth guards that can potentially help you,
0: um,
1: positioning pillows that might be able to help if it's serious enough. If you already had sleep apnea before, um, I mean, CPAP is really the only way you can really treat, um, Sleep happen. It's variations um, yeah. can treat sleep apnea, so that's very, very important to pay attention to.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I just think that's that's a underappreciated part of of sleep health that it's super important to talk to your doctor about any kind yes. of sleep breathing issues. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to. We've sort of touched on this a little bit, but I want I want to circle back to it because I, I think it's really interesting. I, I was at a conference a few years ago, and there was a, a group who was presenting some preliminary data on. Postpartum depression, I think, was the, the main thing they were studying, but what they were looking at in particular was um, sort of variables around sleep quality among new moms and how that mm. might explain a, a, you know, a surprising amount of the variance in terms of who actually gets postpartum depression and anxiety and to what extent yeah. um, they get it and struggle with it. So just to to circle back around to this question, what do we know about the relationship between, like, I think we all, we sort of, everybody takes it for granted. Okay. You're a new mom. Like, you're not going to sleep great. We talked about that. Um, and we're starting to know more that like, you know, postpartum depression and anxiety are things, you know, they're real things that, that happen regularly, but what Mm -hmm. about the relationship between Mm -hmm. those two? Like, what do we know about the relationship between, um, poor sleep and yeah, postpartum depression and anxiety and mood issues?
1: Yes. So you're absolutely right. There's a huge connection there. Uh, So poor sleep prospectively and concurrently predicts postpartum depression. Meaning Mm. if you have poor sleep during pregnancy, you're more likely to have postpartum depression once the baby's born. And if you have poor sleep during postpartum, you're also more likely to have uh, postpartum depression. To clarify
0: real quick, when you say if you have poor sleep before, do you mean like well, you're just not sleeping as well as um, when you weren't pregnant or like Mm -hmm. you have a sleep disorder, like you have insomnia, you have like diagnosed insomnia or something like that. Like what what does that mean exactly? Like poor sleep
1: before? Yeah, that's a great question. And the problem is that the research does not super clearly define poor sleep because it's mostly perinatal mental health. Researchers who are bringing in this sleep component to to study it, not so much sleep experts who are looking at perinatal women.
0: Gotcha. They're probably giving them a survey, kind of asking about sleep symptoms. Okay.
1: Exactly. So it's like a more broad sleep, but like often people would say insufficient sleep or poor sleep or bad, poor sleep quality, sort of catch all terms. Um, So we don't have it super parsed out, you know, what specifically we're talking about. I mean, we do know that sleep apnea during, um, at any time is associated with depression. We know that insomnia at any time is associated with depression. Um, And we know circadian disruption at any time is associated with depression. So I'm sure those are major buckets. and and fatigue and daytime sleepiness as well. So, you know, all of those things added together. Um, but, you know, it's also a two-way street. So having depression, postpartum or otherwise, also makes it harder to sleep well, more likely to have insomnia, for example. So when there is this two-way street, we can get into a vicious cycle situation that's really hard to parse. Um, and And so one thing I found really interesting is, traditionally uh we've really associated infant temperament with post- postpartum depression so you okay. know hopefully we talk about having a fussy baby or a difficult baby or hard to soothe baby or colicky baby um and we've known for decades and decades that having a, a fussier baby makes it so that the parents are more likely to have postpartum depression however if you actually measure the mom's sleep and you take that into consideration statistically, then the t- infant temp- temperament and the postpartum depression association just melts
0: away. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. So we know that the infant temperament to postpartum depression link is really about the mom's sleep and the mom's postpartum depression link. So mm-hmm. that's why I think uh, it's important to know stuff like this because you can't really intervene on the infant's temperament also is kind of unfair to blame the baby, I think in a way. Uh, but we can perhaps do some things about the sleep health of, of the mom.
0: Yeah. So this, and this is such a, I try to be really like delicate in a way, in the way I talk about this, because on the one hand, what we've just been saying is, uh, good kind of sleep health generally is really important for your overall experience with pregnancy and postpartum. and, And even in terms of, um, Preventing or or warding off or mitigating postpartum depression and anxiety and other or other mood issues, right? But what we also know as as, as uh, CBTI providers and, and and sleep psychologists is there's this funny thing with sleep where the more you start to think about it and the more worried you get about it, often like the worse it gets. So I, I, to me, the take home here is it, sleep is like w- doing what you can to improve your sleep and, and get really good consistent sleep is one of the best things you can do for your whole experience in, in sort of mm-hmm. pregnancy and, and postpartum, especially as it relates to depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. right? On the other hand, you want to be balanced with that. You don't want to get overly kind of neurotic about it. There are like, you're just not going to sleep as great as you want to when you're pregnant yes. and after you have a kid, yes. right? So you want to be both validating of normal sleep disturbances and disruptions, yeah. um, but also do what you can, right? To give yourself the best odds of, of, getting good sleep. Um.
1: Oh, that's such a good point. It's such a difficult balance to strike, right? Like I consulted on a case where um, a, a, a new mom, brand new mom with a two week old baby um, was having terrible insomnia postpartum. Um, and she was going for three mile runs to try to tire herself out so she could sleep. Oh, wow. And my message was, oh my goodness, you're working too hard. Like, think about the message you're sending your body. Like, evolutionarily, mm-hmm. a brand new mom that just gave birth to a baby, if she is running three miles in between breastfeeding, that means that there, there's a tiger chasing her. You know, mm-hmm. there's no other reason why she would be running three miles. So, I think the, it's It's really important, like you said, to find that balance between, okay, we want to take sleep seriously and we know it's important, but we we don't want to go against the grain to fight for it and to work too hard at it. it I think it comes back to the the take-home message we were talking about last time in part one of this conversation, which is listen to your body. you know yeah. if your body tells you you're sleepy, sleep. if your body tells you you're not sleepy, then, Take care of yourself in other ways and allow sleep to come to you. Um, And sometimes it, and most of the time, it's not going to come to you in the same way as it did before, but go with the flow and it's really easier said than done, but also be patient because about somewhere between one month and three months, things are going to get so much better because your baby will develop her own circadian rhythm. So I think sometimes just knowing what to expect and knowing what's actually wrong, going wrong versus not going wrong can be helpful for people to have that light at the end of the tunnel and to prioritize the right types of things like resting and self-care um, and getting support from other people rather than prioritizing like driving yourself into the ground so you can sleep.
0: Gotcha. So how kind of a final question for you here, real real practically. How do you know how should people, not how do you know, but how should people think about the the distinction between sort of normal sleep difficulties say after postpartum, right. And, uh, insomnia. So in, in other words, I, you know, I just had, I just had a kid and it's been really rough, you know, I'm not sleeping nearly as much as I would like. And my, clearly my circadian system is all over the place. And, um, and it's been, you know, a month, two months, three months, and it's still just like really rough. Like, is this, do I need to see a professional about my sleep? Is this still part of like normal transitioning out of, postpartum, um, sleep issues. Like how do you know the difference between what's a normal kind of levels of sleep disruption postpartum Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. no, this is like budding insomnia, um, and needs to be addressed professionally. So how, how would you, what are some tips for like, just not specific advice necessarily, but how do you think through that balance there?
1: That's a great, fantastic question. And I will try my best to answer it, but this is really more based on clinical experience and there's really not enough research to say definitively one way or the other. But I would say one, just in terms of the way you think about sleep, you know, if it's, if it's like, well, you know, I'm, ugh, sleep sucks. Like I'm going to complain about it in my mom group chat a little bit. Like that's what that's normal. (laughs) Um, but if you are spending a lot of your waking time thinking about it obsessing over sleep working really hard at it and like feeling very hopeless and um distressed about it i think that's definitely a real like a bigger problem right. also timeline wise i would say like it really doesn't hurt to get a professional consultation by about 3 months postpartum if you're not feeling better um because that's sort of around the time when a baby's sleep trajectory is good. There's, that's the fork in the road kind of at the three four month mark, and that's also kind of a fork in the road from what I've seen in terms of, uh, you know, mom's postpartum sleep. It's like either they get a lot better at about the three four month mark, or we're we're seeing some chronic sleep issues develop from here. Yeah.
0: So to be clear, it's not that at three months, I suddenly feel like I did when I was, you know, wasn't pregnant, didn't have kids, and like, everything's great, and I'm back to normal. And sorry. But But the the trajectory is clearly going in the right direction. And you may still feel, you know, like you're not getting quite as much sleep as you like, but like, things are moving in the right direction. Right. Um, But if you feel like they're not, if they're sort of like plateauing, or even starting to get worse, at that kind of three, four month mark. That might be a good time to consider at least. And I like the way you phrase that. Get a consultation. You know, like yeah. talk to someone who is a specialist in sleep, um, and just and just kind of see.
1: And ideally, ideally, um, they would see someone who's a perinatal sleep expert, which is like finding a needle in a haystack. Very, very, very hard to find this person because, you know, I, frankly, there are a lot of my colleagues who are perinatal mental health providers who don't know enough about sleep. And there are sleep experts who are tops in their fields who don't know enough about perinatal sleep specifically. So it's actually very hard to find an expert that's, that kind of does both. I'm hoping that we'll get more and more of that training into our training programs. Um, but, you know, we we can only do our best to try to find those resources.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's great. And if nothing else, even if you can only find one, you know, each of those independently. You yeah, can, that's true. You can get them talking, right? Like you can yeah. have them both kind of <laughs> helping out. Um,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, well, that's that's really helpful. Um, Jade, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming back um, and really fleshing out this, this topic that's just so, so important, but yeah. not nearly... Um, yeah, it's not. It's just not talked about. It we, we get we talk a lot about and have a lot of resources on helping babies sleep better and baby sleep training and all that kind of oh, stuff. Um, yeah, but I, so I mean, much. I know. <laughs> yeah, there's just so much more needed. I think um, for moms.
1: Um, yes, this is so close to my heart. I want to write a book that is just titled "What About Moms," and it's all about mom sleep. You know, I would love to write that book because I think there is such a need for this, and I think there's a trend of women and parents and moms starting to to allow themselves to care about themselves and prioritize their own health and that's just something that historically we've never had before so i i love the trend that we're you know the trend we're seeing and i want to make sure that we're actually putting out evidence-based clinically sound advice for the sleep component of that
0: yeah, that's fantastic. Speaking of good advice for sleep, where can people go to learn more about you and all your excellent work?
1: Well, thank you so much. So my website is jadewuphd.com, uh, or you can go to drjadewoo.com, drjadewoo.com. Both of those will work. Um, and I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, and I will be putting out a book, hopefully late next year, all about insomnia.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.